The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. With the Oscar nominations announced and voting just around the corner, we want to call your attention to our interviews with Academy Award-nominated filmmakers. For example, check out our conversation with Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy about their film, The Martha Mitchell Effect. Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General and Nixon campaign chief John Mitchell, was dismissed at the time of Watergate as being crazy and even a drunk. She was, in fact, the victim of a well-planned gaslighting campaign hatched by Nixon, his top aides, and even her own husband. Stunning in its revelations and highly immersive in its cinematic approach, this powerful film will grant you a new perspective on those dark days of American history. You can watch The Martha Mitchell Effect now on Netflix. Do you have a brief two-line log line for the film? I think we each have our own kind of interpretation of it, but Kartiki, have you got your favorite way to describe it? I think it's a message to humanity about our connection to other wild animals and the sacred bond that we share with animals. My version is, this is the most unusual family drama you've ever seen. That's Kartiki Gonzalez and Doug Blush talking about their film, The Elephant Whisperers. This is Carter Key's directorial debut, and it's been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. You can see the film on Netflix. If you enjoy this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod, and you can follow us at Top Ducks Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. And now, my conversation with Carter Key, Gonzalez, and Doug Blush about The Elephant Whisperers. Key and Doug, welcome to Top Ducks. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. So let's talk about the opening. We love to talk about openings. You set a super high bar here because you basically intercut shots of a man going into the forest. We'll later learn his name is Bowman. Goes into the forest and it's intercut fairly rapidly with these kind of static shots, but they're beautiful shots of nature, we assume, in those woods. It's beautifully done photography, and I think it starts setting that theme in motion right from the start. I'll speak as Kartiki's collaborator and editor that we had so much of what Kartiki brought back from five years of working in the preserve and in the area that we could have done three hours of that. We wanted to summarize in a way, create the ecosphere of what the world was that Bowman and Belly lived in which is a daily existence with nature. There might be a jaguar or wild dogs or wild birds just hovering around all the time. And this is part of the environment that Bowman and Belly live in as a normal day of existence. And that's kind of the message too of the film is that it's possible that humanity can live in some level of harmonious sync with the natural world. Also, it sets the stage for what's going to be the big surprise of who's the kid who's going to be going with Bowman down to the bath. When I see this doc, this level of photography too, I wonder, it seems like this is a, in some ways, a different skill than, I hate to say this, but you're run of the mill everyday cinema verite, like shooting animals in the woods, I would think would require a different kind of skill and maybe even different equipment. It's a five-year documentary that came into being. And initially we just started out with me on my cell phone and trying to record these small moments that I didn't even know was going to become a documentary and then spend a lot of time and actually build a whole lot of trust with Bowman and Rago and slowly eventually it developed into a story but we actually used the entire range of the Sony cameras 
we use the FX9 and the F7 Mark II and in a, a big range of beautiful lenses. And we chose much lighter cameras because of the verite style that we decided to go on with. We were always running around with the cameras. And I think five years of being out in the wilderness and shooting something like somebody's lives day in and day out as it's actually unraveling is just something you have to be on your toes all the time. Even at just at the level of nature photography, this is an f- incredibly impressive and just beautiful film. So the man, we will eventually come to know him as Bowman, but that's not how he introduces himself originally, right? He calls himself Kings of the Forest. He tells us that his ancestors have been here for generations. Can you explain to us what this means? So in the south of India, it's basically the Dravidian side of India. And this goes back because in the top of India, there was a lot of mixing. You have Genghis Khan who went through the top of India, which ended up in everybody being mixed to great degrees over there from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Russia, so on. But in the south of India, there was no real mixing going on. So the people from down south, very pure in that sense. So all across India, I mean, India is really diverse. We have thousands of tribes there and languages and there's so much diversity there. So the Katnaikan tribe is one of those ancient tribes which grew up in those very mountains before these states even came into being. And that's why the language that they speak is only known to the 1,700 approximate people who live in that region. And even me or other people working on the documentary did not know the language. We actually had to go get it translated because very few people actually know that. And their language is a mixture of Tamil, which is from Tamil Nadu, and there's Malayalam, which is from Kerala, and then there's Kannada, which is from Karnataka. So it's a combination of all these three languages. So it's really interesting actually looking at the reviews where even Indians were saying, I think it's Malayalam. No, I think it's Tamil. Oh, no, no, no. I think it's Kannada. So even Indians didn't know what language it was because everybody could pinpoint little bits and pieces from it. Coming back to the Kartanaik, they are originally from that land and they used to work a lot with elephants and animals and they lived deep in the core of the forest. So over time, they've started working in other jobs and earning money and so on. But one of their main things, apart from elephant caregiving, is also the collection of honey. And that's why that scene of them going and gathering honey was so important. It showed their relationship to the landscape and it showed how beautifully they respect nature on many levels. And it just sort of put everything on the forefront of the kind of work that they do that People like us would be wearing thousands of harnesses and scaling down that 500-foot rock. It just shows how professional they are and how well they know the forest and our landscape. That scene is really a great scene. I wanted to talk about it a little bit. It's an amazing sequence. It's maybe two minutes, but what impact in two minutes? You show these three men pointing up, like, are they really going to go up there? They ascend the height, and then they scale down using what looks like handmade it's twine yes it's actually hemp or twine yeah yeah it's actually from the forest so the previous day they actually went and gathered the rope they got it from a long bush and then the next day they spent tying it up and that's what they went down on you have a close shot then a medium shot and they pull way back and continually we see like bees i assume bees in front of you know kind of uniting this thing. As you said, they're knocking down the honey, but someone says, I think it's Belly, who we'll meet a little bit later, say, we only take what we need. What we need. That's just such a beautiful moment. It really shows the way the indigenous people and especially the Kartanaikan community have a relationship with nature. And it's about sufficiency. And I think that's something that the entire planet can learn from in terms of only taking what you need and just sustaining of that and allowing everything else to move on in the circle of life. 
And I also have to admit that during the filming of this, our entire crew climbed up 5,000, 6,000 feet to film that pre scene. So that itself was a journey by itself. Wow. And we came down the mountain just before dark because there are wild elephants there, wild tigers, wild leopards. And you don't want to face an elephant on the path coming down. That would not be good. <laughs> if you just look to just off the path, it's a steep drop straight down. Mm. And we had all our camera gear and drone and all of that. So I'm so glad you brought up that scene, Michael, because it's one of our favorites. And when I first got to know the footage and I was seeing some of the raw material, I always zoomed in on that as this really speaks to the life in the forest in a larger way. They don't just tend to baby elephants. They, they have a whole life cycle of working with the forest. And it's also very happily a sort of a shout out and an acknowledgement of a film that Kartiki and I both love very much, which is Honeyland. I have to just shout that out. Oh, yeah. In a way, it's our little hat tip, very much in context <laughs> to our film, but also a little shout out to the beautiful work in Honeyland. I missed that. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay, so another very important element here, it's brought up even before the title, uh, briefly, but I think importantly, it's spirituality. We see Bowman praying, we'll later learn that he is a priest, and I think in general, maybe Westerners, I say Westerners, there's a lot of different Westerners. Westerners like me might know that elephants are important in some way, but can you talk a little bit about this? To begin with, India and elephants just go back many years. Such a beautiful bond. I think in India, the elephant has been a symbol of war, a symbol of peace. And there's also Lord Ganesha, who is the giver of good luck and who protects everybody. And I think Lord Ganesha is really embedded into Hinduism and it's just a very important animal in our country. So I think it's just really special that Bowman himself is a priest in the temple as well as he looks after elephants. And that's his way of actually doing his part. The way he looks at Raghu, he actually looks at it as his way of saying thank you to God and looking after looking after God in many ways. And that's how much he respects the job that he has. Being from obviously a very distant culture from this culture, I observe around the world that I think Cultures that really respect and worship animals tend to be the ones that have this closer bond and also are the ones in many cases who are moving forward on climate justice, things like that, because I think there's this sense of shared space and the unfairness of us impeding the natural flow of animals and the natural territory of animals. I've worked on several things about First Nations of North and South America that are so bonded and so tied to the idea, for instance, of the condor and the eagle, that there is this bond with nature that we need to maintain and we need to worship and respect. And I think that's something that really resonates in the film, that this is not a, a transactional thing between man and animal. It's actually a bond and it goes to belief. It goes deep into belief. Yeah, I think that also comes back to the overall thing that in a country like India, Wildlife isn't very far away. I have leopards and tigers that come home at my very house. I have remote cameras put on my gates and I see leopards come by, tigers and bears. Wow. And there's no instance where you're not living with animals. You can have an elephant show up next door. In fact, a couple of months ago, there was a tigress who showed up about a kilometer away from my house and she was just in the forest nearby. There's a lot of coexistence happening on a very deep level. We literally coexist with animals. There was a night where that exact thing happened. Kartiki sent me a capture of a little bit of camera video on her front lawn. <laughs> and it crosses, oh, look at the jaguar. <laughs> it's like, 
You have a jaguar in your front yard. A leopard, yeah. A leopard was a leopard. Yes, yeah. leopard. No jaguars yeah. in India. Got to get my cat straight, yeah. I do want to say, because I think this film is about India, but it's also for all of us that it is interesting in living even here in San Francisco, besides packs of raccoons, coyotes come right. and like, stare hungrily at my little dog. And yeah. you don't have to go far outside, too far outside the city to find big cats and even bears. And it is changing. Yeah, I think the other thing that I will point out while we're in this section is, I think the part where Belly says that her ex-husband was killed by a tiger denotes perfectly the type of the things that happen in our day-to-day lives over here. And coexisting is something that we have to do, but at the same time, it's also dangerous. As Belly tells that story, and I think one emphasize here is that this film celebrates the animals of our world, but it's not overly romanticized. As you tell the story about Belly losing her husband to a tiger, you see a beautiful shot of a tiger. And I think that just encapsulates the both modes here, these beautiful animals, but they're not undangerous, if that's a word. It's so beautiful to gaze into the eyes of a tiger. Now I've done that many times on foot and in vehicle. There's nothing quite like looking at the eyes of a tiger. And one more theme, even before the title comes up, we hear about Bowman speaking off camera. He says, oh, my dear, did you sleep, my child? And of course, we don't know who he's talking to yet. And we discover this is a baby elephant. It's a little bit of a surprise. And he brings the baby elephant down the river and lovingly washes him. And of course, there's a real sense of which these are families. Later, Belly will say that Ragu was like a child, she tugged at her clothes, that Ragu survived because they became a family. This is a super important theme, and you meet it almost literally. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's a fable of family. In that sense, the family can be any group of people that find that bond. And by people, I mean animals, humans. We've done films that have bonds between people and crossword puzzles. I mean, that family is what you make it. And in this case... This is just a natural extension of a family unit. It's just so great because the same dynamics, you've got kids misbehaving, you've got them not eating their food, you've got them doing all of these things that any parent would recognize. And I think that's what's so universal about the experience of watching the movie is if you're a child or a parent, you're going to relate to something that happens in this film because this happens to everybody all around the world. Child feeding seed is just amazing if you've ever tried to feed a toddler, you understand this, right? They won't eat the peas until you give them the coconut in this case. So like a toddler. And Raghu loves his dessert before anything else. He likes (laughs) a piece of jaggery, which is the palm sugar, and he loves his coconuts. So let's talk about the story of Raghu just a little bit. Due to a drought, and we'll talk about that in a second, his herd wandered in the village in search of food and water. His mother was electrocuted, we assume, by a fence protecting crops. He was attacked by dogs. The villagers did try to help him, but failed. And I think this really opens the door to talk about some of the challenges that these animals are facing. The first one is the interplay with people. And I want to say this is everywhere. I just talked about the interplay here in in San Francisco. Bobham says, it is the actions of us humans that is causing the elephants to enter this village. And as you show shots of a mother elephant and a baby in traffic, really. Can you talk about the interplay with humans and what danger that's bringing to the animals? In this landscape, it is the largest contiguous landscape for the Asian elephant. And it's a combination of many states put together with many natural reserves within this biosphere reserve, which is called the Nilgiri Biosphere Reserve. So it's really the last landscape that they have left in this region. That's one of the main things. When I come back to the beginning of the story, it actually had a bittersweet beginning to it because the Asian elephant is actually losing its habitat at a very rapid pace due to encroachment and climate change in a fast developing country like India. So I wanted the story to be positive because there's so many things that you can focus on that are depressing. And it was a place that had so much beauty to it. And you had this unusual family dynamic. 
and because Raghu's mother was electrocuted and died instantly as her herd had wandered into a nearby village in search of food and water, this was mainly due to a prolonged drought that we had during the time. And this is definitely to do because of climate change. So it's just really depressing to see all of this happening on the scale that it was in the space that I call home. So I just wanted people to really understand the plight of these elephants. And it's really sad, but the Asian elephant is actually endangered. To give you an example, I think the tiger, the Bengal tiger was on the brink of extinction. And you had Project Tiger that came in and just took over. And today in India, we face a problem where we have an overpopulation of tigers because everybody stepped up and actively started participating and helping conserve the landscape that the tiger needed to survive. But now it's a question of once that job is done and an animal has come back with full force, how do we deal with it in a country which needs the landscape? I just really wanted people to be able to understand elephants and how beautiful they are on a much deeper level and also to recognize their similar traits and intelligence. I wanted to get people to help protect them, but not just them, but also their landscape because that's what they need to survive going forward. And I wanted to show the importance of indigenous communities and to showcase the knowledge that they share. And I think most importantly, to give people like Bowman and Belly a voice. So that's how this documentary began. And it began over the fact that there was this very unusual family dynamic and also to just get people more aware of the connection that we share with other living beings on this planet that Mm. are fighting for survival. One thing I love about what you're picking up on, Michael, is that we intentionally, Kartiki and I talked a lot about this, about not loading this up with the typical narration and the experts and the well-meaning zoologists who'd flown in from a thousand miles away to comment on this. And it really is Bowman and Belly's story. Yes. And it's told through their eyes and through their experiences. And we thought there are issues to discuss. There's climate change and habitat depletion and all these things, but it comes out organically in the story. And we really didn't want to have people come in and hit the hammer so hard on the head. People would maybe even feel more about this if they saw it through Bowman and Belly's eyes. And I'm really proud that Kartiki was really insistent on going that direction and that we really followed that path and kept it very much experiential. I want to pick up on a thread also that you just brought up, which is around the intelligence of the animals. Because I think one of the things this film is really trying to do is say, don't put animals in a box. You know, they have greater faculties, you might think. You have these great shots of Ragu and then later Amu with a soccer ball. And it's amazing to see what they can do, but it's also a clear sense of how playful they are. So that's one thing, playfulness. But another thing is we learn later that there's an older elephant, Krishna, who seems to be feeding Ragu at one point. And you say something that I think for a long time would have been hard for humans to hear, which is, that they're passing down knowledge, that animals have culture. And I think one of the things as humans, we want to draw lines. Oh, we're the animals who talk. Well, actually, we're the animals who think. Mm, We're the animals who have culture that we pass down over time. Well, actually, other animals have culture that they pass down. I think it's important because of the current climate change situation and human encroachment on habitat and wildlife, that we really need to respect other animals at this stage. And I, over the course of making this movie, I learned that elephants are extremely intelligent, emotional, and very social on so many levels. And I thought it was an excellent place to start. But I think humans can relate to elephants because elephants share many human traits. During the course of this movie, I think there were some things that we didn't put into the documentary, but I actually have camera footage of an elephant that had come back to mourn another elephant. 
And we have CC camera footage of that where an elephant comes back a week and a half later to this almost half disintegrated corpse. The elephant lifts the body two, three times and hangs around for about a week and a half and keeps trying to lift the body. And it just shows how emotionally connected they are. They are aware that the animal is no longer there, but they want it to come along with them. That's their way of actually mourning one of their own. I think elephants are just really connected. Krishna and Raghu had a very special bond together. And you could really see that even in wild herds, what happens is the elderly of the herd step in and actually look after the younger ones. That's also one of the reasons as to why Raghu was taken away, because he became very stubborn as he moved into adolescence. What happens in a wild herd is that the older brothers step in and try to teach the younger ones how to behave, even if it resorts to punishment. They have their herd dynamics. Elephants are matriarchal. They're led by a matriarch. She holds all the knowledge to all the pathways that they cross, where the water bodies are, where you can get food. And this just exhibits how intelligent they are. I was also talking to the researcher who we had on board for our documentary, who was backing our documentary along the entire journey. He just got his PhD with elephant behavior. But he was actually explaining to me that elephants can really predict if a calf is going to survive or not based on the climatic conditions and whether there's going to be a drought ahead. And he said there also been instances where the calf has been left behind because it's going to slow the herd down in its journey ahead. So they really have great levels of intelligence and emotional connection. Something that I've learned over the course of these five years, interacting so closely with elephants, both wild and at the camp. I'd say they're emotionally maybe more intelligent than humans sometimes. <laughs> There's a scene where Amu comforts Belly, and there's such a tender moment where Belly doesn't have the room for it, but Amu keeps trying. Amu keeps reaching out and trying to connect when the distress is at its greatest for Belly. I just find that so resonant, that scene. I remember when we saw the footage, and it's just beautiful to watch this animal reach out and try to heal somebody. That's very important. So certainly a theme of this film is the ways in which Belly and Baman are able to help these young elephants heal, but it's also about how they heal, how especially Belly says, in helping Raghu, we forgot our own troubles. I think while most films have focused on humans being cured by a bond with an animal or humans being harmed by wild animals or even wild animals just suffering from human expansion into their territory, I think this documentary really lets viewers understand both the elephant and the human carers with minimal outside interpretation. I think it portrays the dignity of both elephants and the indigenous people who have lived and cared for them for centuries. So I really wanted to get audience to stop seeing animals as the other and to start seeing them as one of us. By the way, one of the films that I'm reminded a little bit out there right now is House of Splinters. Another great film about unusual family structures, right? About pretty close to orphaned kids. And there's some structural things here too, where we're going down one story and then another story arises. But I think one of the things too is there's someone tells a traditional fable and reinterprets it in both films. In this case, Belly is talking to her granddaughter and she tells kind of fable of the three blind men and the elephants and how they each touching a part of the elephant interpreted differently. It's a snake, it's a sieve, it's a broom. And traditionally, whereas this is sort of like the way you approach something changes the way you see it. What sort of moral does she draw out of it for her grandchild? It's a tricky situation for somebody like Belly because having lost her ex-husband to a tiger and having a grandchild who is living with elephants at this very moment, it's a very delicate balance that she needs to 
create for Sanjana especially because you have this young child growing up in the middle of the forest. It's a challenge that she's going to face throughout because she needs to get Sanjana to understand that she's living in a wild space, to be aware of all the dangers that she will encounter, but also getting her to understand how beautiful they are at the same time. And I think as a grandmother, that's very challenging to be able to do both very seamlessly. And she's doing an amazing job. You certainly end the film on a note of hopefulness. We see the next generation, we're told that they're going to learn the ways to, in many ways, the knowledge is being passed down as we saw the knowledge being passed down between the elephants, between generations. There's a real image here too that we saw in the beginning and continue, which is the running water, which I thought really suggested continuity across time. That's something we built in throughout the film. Water is at the core of everything, of course. That's where life really springs from. So to bond the movie together, there are characters that aren't human or animal. They're actually environmental. And we did spread that throughout the film. So the water has a role in the early going. And then we actually go from trickle to stream to waterfall to build that relationship. And of course, water is a very big part of the ending as well. So glad you picked up on that because that was a very conscious decision that we were making to make sure the elements were cared for there too. Also, the repetition of, I think they're capuchins. Oh, langur, langur. The langur, okay. langur from India. Yeah. They're comic. They pick up the food that's left behind. But we see a, the mother comforting the child that it's not just elephants. <laughs> there are a lot of animals out there and they do have emotions and feelings and we should respect that and seek for that point of connection. And I think that was a beautiful part of the movie that we both really enjoyed putting together was just, it wasn't just about the elephants or bovin and belly. They're living in this ecosystem that is thriving alongside them. And that was what is beautiful. We had the tigers, the leopards, the bears, the langur, the birds, it all beautifully came together. The monkeys do have their own arc. It's true. And I'm really <laughs> glad you picked up on that. You found all our goodies because there is ultimately, they're, they're comic, but they even have a beautiful moment of mother and child there. You're reminded, oh yeah, they're not just here for our amusement, which is fine, but they're here for something else too. I want to thank you for this film. You know, it's beautifully shot. It works just as a nature documentary, but it works far beyond that. It's a very well-constructed story about two people and two elephants. There's a great wedding scene here, folks. I'll leave that for you to discover. But it's also about this possibility of a true relationship between us and other creatures in this world. So I came away enlightened and hopeful. That's uh, so great to hear, Michael. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear what's up next for you both, ideally. Sure. I'm actually working on another four to five year documentary, which will be on the First Nations and their relationships to orcas in the Pacific Northwest. We're in the midst of finishing the final bits of the new Brett Kavanaugh expose documentary that just launched at Sundance. And I'm co-directing the 50-year history of the band Los Lobos. And I forgot to say, and congratulations on the nomination. It's very well deserved. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. It's great. This was a fun interview. I really enjoyed it. I want to ask each of you if you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think gets the attention that it deserves. Riding of Fire, I think that was beautifully showcased. It got up to the nominations last year, but it didn't make it as a final winner. And I thought it was just a beautifully done piece. It's a very sensitive topic. And I think it is extremely political, so it didn't get very far, but extremely well done. One of my favorites last year and love talking to the directors of that film. I think Rintu and Sushmita, they did a wonderful job. I have to throw two out there. They were both on the short list. They're both beautiful films. 
Andy Timoner's uh, Last Flight Home and David Sieves' Bad Axe, both of which we became very close with while we were doing our tours and seeing people. So those are absolute must-sees this year in the documentary world. And we've had both Andy and David on the pod, so you can check out those discussions. 